We are thankful, O oh God, for your grace in our lives. As we turn our attention now to you in your word, we ask that you would guide us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We are launching a series on the book of Genesis between now and the end of summer, basically. For the next number of months, we'll go through most of the book verse by verse, though there'll be sections that will take it kind of section by section. But as we launch into the book of Genesis, I want to spend a few minutes on the very first message and talk about this subject matter, about the improbability of the possibility of the universe existence without a prime mover. I won't say that again during the message. Um, one of the things that's happened in our culture is most of us engage in colleagues, talking to colleagues, neighbors, friends of ours who don't believe God exists anymore. Western civilization has said, the universe has self-created, we don't need God. And as we engage in conversations with those around us that are saying they don't need God or, or that God doesn't even exist, it creates a great deal of tension. Because as we engage in conversation with them, they begin to think, well, if you don't believe, if you do believe God exists, sorry, you're anti-intellectual or you're truly not thinking. Um, you're unable to be as sophisticated as we are. And what I want to do today is kind of walk through you how I actually don't believe that is accurate. Western culture has moved from a time when it was impossible to not believe in God to a time when it became possible to not believe in God to a time when, for many, it is impossible to believe in God. And so you see that shift where our culture, though it not be Christian, was Christianized, where then people began to question whether or not they believed in God, to now they question why they should believe in God. And there are a number of reasons why people don't believe in God. Let me just name a few. One is the existence of evil itself. If God is good, it is assumed evil shouldn't exist. The second is the belief that science has disproved God, that science actually has disproved that God exists. From Richard Dawkins, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Now, to make a suggestion like that is audacious on three accounts. One, you would have to assume that God hasn't revealed himself. Two, you would have to assume that God can't reveal himself. And three, you would have to believe that you have infinite knowledge because you would have to know everything to be able to suggest that God doesn't exist. So for you to say, or in Dawkins' case, that he knows God doesn't exist, means he would have to know everything to know that. But there's other reasons why people don't believe God anymore. The amount of suffering in the world, which again is linked to the evil, existence of evil. The amounts of religions in the world, which religion do you pick? Are all of them right? Is one of them right? Hypocritical followers of, of any religion not wanting God exists. Some people just simply don't want God to exist. This is Thomas Nagel. I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I might in my belief or that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And then there are attacks on God in a variety of ways. Those include the belief that God is dangerous or believing in God is dangerous. I mean, I'm in conversations now where people would espouse that if you believe in God, you are dangerous. You are dangerous because you believe in a fairy tale. You are dangerous because 
what you're now raising your children into, I'll get into this in a moment, is dangerous. They actually now call us the unethical ones. Christians are now called in writing unethical. There's a huge movement out there again to ban the Bible. It had come along a number of years ago, been squashed, but a movement again is growing to have scripture banned in the way that it's been written. So belief in God is dangerous. Secondly, that God was necessary for humanity's infantile and adolescence phase of development, so our younger years of development in the quote-unquote evolutionary context, and it's no longer needed. Religion is no longer needed now that humanity has entered adulthood. Thirdly, God is just simply not necessary. We don't need God. We're better than that. Fourthly, raising your children to believe in God should be criminalized as it is a form of child abuse. That's a belief now. Richard Dawkins again. Faith can be very, very dangerous, and deliberately to implant it into the vulnerable mind of an innocent child is a grievous wrong. And then lastly, at least for this moment, uh, the belief that God loves you is selfish and narcissistic. So if you believe that God loves you, the world is saying you're the most selfish person around. It's narcissistic. There's nothing more self-absorbed than to believe that God loves you. Listen to this quote. You are not a unique snowflake. You are not special. You are just another piece of decaying matter on the composite pile of the world. Nothing of who you are and what you will do in the short time you are here will matter. Everything short of that realization is vanity. Is vanity. We turn to Genesis 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Just two verses. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless. It was empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So a couple of comments on this note. In the beginning, God. The author of this is commentating as God is inspiring him that before there was anything, as everything began, there was simply God. In the beginning, God. His statement is that God existed, nothing else did. In the beginning, there is God. And then there's a, 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 a here, a glimpse of the Trinity, even in the first few verses of Scripture, because this is God the Father, and then the mention of the Spirit of God that's hovering over the waters. And so we have here in the beginning pages of Scripture that there is God, and outside of God, there was nothing. That God is the genius creator of the universe. J. Uh, Bozowski he says this, every doctrine rests on certain first principles that they, that, sorry, that cannot be themselves proven because they are the means by which we prove and disprove. We prove and disprove everything else. Sorry, it should just say by which we prove and disprove everything else. I, I wrote that twice. So what happens here then, we begin to experience this tension between science and religion. So how do we as Christians get along with those that are scientists? Well, the answer is quite well because Lots of scientists are believers, and lots of believers are scientists. And so here, this isn't something where we're in opposition to each other. This is not religion versus science. This is an understanding of a number of things. One, we're so thankful for those advancements in, in, in science. I mean, if you think of biological or medical advancements over the last number of years, things that we are able to do now, uh, diseases that are able to be cured, some things that have almost been wiped out of, out of, out of, out of the world's uh, existence, we're thankful for some of those medical advancements. I mean, I was talking with someone yesterday, I was taking down our Christmas lights, who was walking by, and she has cancer, she's been going through treatment and chemotherapy and radiation, and that didn't exist years ago. 
And so she's so thankful for medical technology and advancements. We're thankful for advancements in the ecology, ways that we understand the world and the ways that it works and how God has created it. And so there's a number of ways that we're thankful. We're thankful in our advancements in mathematics that has allowed us to do things that are, that are, that are something we couldn't have even thought of 150 years ago. And so what do we do? Just, just an introductory response. What if it's not about the possibility or probability of belief in God, but rather the necessity of belief in God? Because he hasn't been fabricated or created by us, but rather he's revealed himself to us. What if it's not just about a probability of belief in God, but a necessity of belief in God? Now, why do I say that? I say that because I believe something has had to always exist, that something has had to necessarily exist, and I believe there's only two options. The one is matter. Either matter has had to exist in some form, and it has always existed, or God has. Because I don't believe nothing can ever create something. I don't believe nothing can ever create something. So even today, if we were to take a test tube and we were to like enclose it and say, well, there's nothing in it, that's not true. It's actually filled with air. That air is filled with particles. Those particles are filled with all kinds of molecules. There's all kinds of molecular structure going on. There's all kinds of things that we can't see with the naked eye happening in that test tube, even though it is, quote, unquote, empty, even though it's a vacuum. There's not nothing in it. There's actually something in it. Something is in that. And so I believe that something had to necessarily cause the universe. John Polkinghorne, who I really appreciate, says this. The occasional occurrence of radical revision in scientific theory making means that one cannot claim the achievement of science to be that of the attainment of absolute truth. John's in his 90s now, godly man who has walked with the Lord. He, he was first a, a, a physicist, you know, multiple PhDs, and then he went on uh, to become a, a, an, an Anglican rector um, and priest in the Anglican tradition in England, in the Church of England, and writes prolifically on this subject, or has. He's in his 90s now. But one of the things that happens is, is scientists will suggest that they have exclusive rationality. What does that mean? It means that because only science has actual objective, quote-unquote, proof, that it can only be the arbitrail of what is real. But what happens is Polkinghorn says, as a scientist, he says, I want you to know that there's lots of times through history where something that has been believed has shifted because of another experiment, because something that's done because of further knowledge. He gives the example in his work of Newton and Einstein and how the Newtonian theories and what that was like were then advanced by the Einsteinian theories and what he was espousing. And people understood that. All of a sudden, there's these breakthroughs. He said, how can you claim that something's truth when even in science, things are evolving and changing, when things are moving along, when new discoveries happening? If this is truth, how can something be built upon, or, or sorry, how can, how, can, how can truth adjust or shift like that? If it's true, it should be absolutely true. So there are three things I want to talk about this morning about why I believe God has to exist. One is our very existence, the cosmological argument. The fact that we exist, I believe, suggests that there is a prime mover. The fact that there is a fine tuning of the universe suggests that there's a prime mover. And the fact that we have morals suggests that there's a prime mover. So our existence, why is there something instead of nothing? Something has had to exist essentially. Like I said a minute ago, it's either matter has had to exist, exist essentially or, we, or, or, sorry, or God had to exist essentially. There's a problem with matter having had to exist essentially. The problem with matter having had to exist essentially is Matter, then, has been able, according to theory, 
to be able to move from an inorganic state, that's the molecules, to an organic state, that's us, right? And before us, obviously, lots of other things, plants, animals, are organic in nature. So that means that they have to believe that matter, which is inorganic, was able to move to an organic state. No one, no one, anywhere, can explain why they believe that occurred or how they believe that occurred. They'll tell you that it did occur, but no one can explain to you how they believed it happened. Simply not possible. And so as that occurs, even those that espouse uh, evolutionary theory hold that, man, this is shaky ground. Listen to this, Stephen Jay Gould, leading paleontologist. He's passed away now with cancer, but well-respected in his field, atheist. Moreover, the pathways that have led to our evolution are quirky, improbable, unpredictable, and utterly uh, unrepeatable. Human evolution is not random. It makes sense. It can be explained after the fact. But wind back life's tape to the dawn of time and let it play again. You will never get humans a second time. That's one of the world's leading evolutions, still highly respected in his field by many, even though he's passed away now probably eight or nine years ago um, in his writings. Stephen Hawking said this a few years ago. The odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are clearly religious implications. It would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way except as an act of God who intended to create beings like us. Then Kai Nielsen says this. Suppose you suddenly hear a Big Bang and you ask me what made that bang and I reply, nothing. It just happened. You would not accept it. In fact, you would find my reply quite unintelligible. One of the theories is that several scientists hold to now is that everything in the universe has a cause, but not the universe. So everything within the universe has a cause, but not the universe. The universe is the uncaused entity. Well, let me throw out a couple of theories like that. That is like saying my truck, which is sitting up front here, that everything within my truck has been caused, it's been made, but not my truck itself. That my truck was able to spontaneously create itself, and then, but none of the parts of it was. When you're saying the universe was able to create itself, it's, it's like saying everything in here we see had to have a cause. I mean, even when you go outside in nature, looking at mountains, looking at seas, looking at flowers, looking at plants, looking at trees, everything had to have a cause. But the universe itself was uncaused. I suggest the only thing that's uncaused is God. If you and I were walking later today, if we went up to my parents' place, which is outside of Caledonia, they live on a, you know, a, a fair bit of land, like an acre-ish of land, and, and then outside of their backyard is just forest and field. So there's several fields and there's forest. Now, if we were walking through the forest and we found like a, one of those orange ball hockey balls, and we said, oh, look at that. And I said, do you know what? I think this ball was created from nothing last night. I think this nothing became something last night. And here it is. You would say to me, huh, talk to me a bit more, Dwayne. And I'd say, well, I think last night under just the right conditions right here in the forest, the nothing that was here became something. You'd say, huh, you, you been to the doctor lately? I'm like, no, why? Maybe you should. Maybe, maybe not just a doctor. Maybe a psychiatrist of some kind you should see. Um, let's say that ball was bigger. Let's say it was the size of my truck. And we came across a ball in the field that was the size of my truck. Would you then say, wow, this is a bigger ball. This one has an uncaused cause. This, this ball has just appeared from nothing into something. Let's say it was the size of the universe. You see, the size of the ball doesn't change the fact that the theory doesn't make sense. The size of the ball doesn't alter that. 
And so one of the things as we think through why we're here, our very existence is this. Something has had to always exist. And your faith is either going to be placed in matter, which you will have to believe has always existed, though it's unexplainable that matter has always existed, or God. Or God. Now, I'm not saying we can explain how God has always existed. We just believe he has. But what I am saying is that it takes as much, if not more, faith to believe that matter has always existed as to believe that God has. But something has had to always have existed. And when people talk to you about the facts, there's lots of facts that they are only throwing out as theory. And they're actually improvable and are simply ideals that people are tossing out. Secondly, the fine-tuning of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe and its regularity. So do you know that there is one in a trillion chance that a universe like ours would support organic human life? One in a trillion chance. In fact, the number of inexplicable constants in our world, such as water boiling to freezing, uh, sorry, water either boiling or freezing at the same temperature every day, gravity and its constant or the rotation of the Earth, if everything, including our universe, is evolving, why is nature regular and constant? So water always boils, always freezes at the same temperature. Gravity is constant. In fact, if the gravitational pull of our Earth shifted just to minutia, the whole world would unspiral. It would just pave itself out of existence. The rotation of our Earth, too, it's constant. These things are constant. When you see things like that that are constant, they cry out that there's been a designer because they look like there's been a design. When you think of the weak force, the weak force is that which governs kind of radioactive decay amongst atoms. This is what I've read. This is not something that I know prolifically. But in the reading, if, if, if you took one of those atoms and you altered its value by simply one part of 10 to 100, that's a massive number. This is written by unbelievers in their field. They say there could not be life on this earth. It could not exist. So the fine-tuning of our universe also indicates that everything should show us that it is life-prohibiting in this universe more likely than life-permitting. That if it was just simply by chance, it seems as if it's all life-prohibiting, like life shouldn't exist rather than life-permitting. So, of course, then there's theories. Well, what are a couple of theories they throw? The one is the theory of the multiverse, right? The suggestion then is that there is a multiverse. One of either two theories in that. Either a group of multiverses across different dimensions that exist basically on the same plane with a bit of a different uh, a frequency. And in their existence of all of them being there, there's either life on a variety of planets in a large set of universes like ours, where we're the only planet and they're the only planet, Earth-like planets, in that whole universe that has life. It's, it's like there's another Marcio and Eleni in a different universe. And all I think of is they have seen too many episodes of The Flash or of The Avengers. I'm not sure which but somehow I just think they've seen too many episodes of something. Another theory on the multiverse is that there is a multitude of multiverses or of universes, and we happen to be the one that has life. That's also called the chance theory. The chance of our life existing on our planet is highly unlikely. It's improbable. Because it's improbable that there would ever be a life-permitting universe. Life-prohibiting is the norm, because that's what we see across the galaxy. But in the one place where there is a chance, we happen to be it. They can't explain why we're the chance, 
They just know that we are the chance. And it's one of the ways that they explain the fine-tuning of the universe. But to me, those don't sound like theories I should base my eternity on. Thirdly, moral. This is probably the biggest of all three. I think the cosmological argument is actually the strongest, but the moral one is the one that actually catches most people. Because the question you have to ask yourself is why are there morals? Why do they even exist? There are three theories. Biological adaptation, the constructivist theory, which is socially constructed, or God. Listen to this, Michael Roos, philosophy of biology, he was at the University of Guelph for a number of years, I think like 35 years now down in the States, he writes this, not a Christian. Morality is a biological adaptation no less than our hands and feet and teeth. He's saying your morals are the same as your hands, your teeth, and your feet. Considered as a rationality justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they're referring above and beyond themselves. Nonetheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction and any deeper mean illusory. So what's he saying? He's saying very clearly that he believes that our morals are simply part of the evolutionary process. Well, what does that mean? Let me talk about a couple of thoughts. One is this. How can you have confidence in any type of moral if that moral is only there because it is what allows at this level of evolution for the survival of the fittest. If evolution really is survival of the fittest, and we need to explain that briefly, because survival of the fittest doesn't always mean the strongest and the smartest. That's not what Darwin was saying. What Darwin was saying, and this is written about prolifically now, was the survival of the fittest means that in that moment of the evolutionary stage, you had or possessed the right conditions in that set of circumstances to survive. So you weren't always the strongest, you weren't always the smartest, just for whatever reason, and they could trace what that reason is, it may have been your biological adaptation, it, may that, may, it meant that you had gained a little bit of weight and that weight allowed you to, 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 to work through the cold and, and you didn't starve right away. It may have been any one of a number of factors. It isn't always that you were the muscle-bound might and you were the most intelligent. It means that who you were or whatever that life form was, was able to move to the next level of evolution because it was the fittest for that set of circumstances. So, if that's the case, that means that our morals, if they're only biological in nature, are simply based on them being what will get us to the next set of evolution the best. It's not what's, it's not what's best for other people. It's not what helps other people. It's not what walks along. It's, it's all about the selfishness of it. So let me do this in COVID, right? I, I did this earlier on in COVID. I talked about a number of studies being done by a lot of, a lot of reputable organizations and, and universities where they had done massive amounts of studies before COVID, this is before this pandemic, on previous pandemics and epidemics. And when they studied the previous pandemics and epidemics, they all came to the same conclusion that these pandemics and epidemics were completely necessary in human history to move us on to the next phase of evolution. So what they said was, let them come. And then we hit a pandemic, right? However you want to classify it, right? We hit a virus that's affecting, that's affecting much of the earth. And all of them are saying, well, we didn't necessarily mean this because now it sounds really heartless when at the end of the day they were saying in the other 
studies, what should happen in these pandemics is a number of people that aren't fit for them should just be wiped out. Let them be wiped out. That's what the studies say. Because if they're not wiped out, we can't move to the next level of evolution. So let them be wiped out. Is that what they've done? Is that what the scientists have done? Have they not done the very opposite? Based on what? Based on what moral compass, if evolution is true, have they done that? Their own studies say they shouldn't be doing this. Their own studies say, let those that are non-fit die out right now. From their leading universities and leading thinkers from only a few years ago, let them all die out. In fact, I'll never forget in the spring when Doug Ford stood in front of everyone, and in one of the speeches where he was closing everything down, and he was showing all of the, uh, the, the escalation of the virus and what it could do, and, and he started off by saying, we need to shut Ontario down to save 4,000 lives. And it's worth it, because we need to save it. We need to save them. And he said, it'd be worth it if it was 2,000. It'd be worth it if it was 500. He kept going down. So finally he said, it'd be worth it if it was one life. What is one life worth? He said, if we shut the whole province down to save just one life, it's worth it. And I remember sitting there thinking, Doug, where are you getting this from? I mean, who sees the value of life like that? The people who understand that we've been created in the image and likeness of God. This is not in any way something that you can have from some type of social construct or from some biological adaptation. The biological adaptation says, let those that are weak or unfit in this climate die so that we can move to the next level of the evolutionary stage. Marie Rudy says this, University of Toronto professor in critical theory, Although I believe that values are socially constructed rather than God-given, I do not believe that gender inequality is any more defensible than racial inequality, despite repeated efforts to pass it off as a culturally-specific custom rather than an instance of injustice. Now let me explain why that's important. What she's saying is exactly this. She's saying that I believe that morals are socially constructed unless they clash with my morals. Isn't that great? Because I actually strongly, as a feminist, that's her, right, believe, if you, read, if you read some of her works, in equality among gender. And so because I believe that, I believe that when there's inequality amongst gender, that that is actually an injustice. Where should she, she get that from? So she's saying on one hand, I, I, I'm a social constructionist. I believe that morals are developed because of, of each society, and we should let each society govern itself, and the social construction of that society is right for that society at this point in history, unless they clash with mine. We see that happening in the world right now. Take Myanmar as an example, right? If you've been watching the news, they're in the news almost every day. The military has taken over, right? The nation is under military siege. What happened yesterday? Several government agencies began to step in from around the world and the United Nations saying, we're going to impose sanctions, like we've got to go in. They're crying out for military from other nations to step in. But if you're a social constructionist, you should actually say, let them do what they're doing. That's right for their nation. And you name whatever nation it is and whatever oppressive regime you want to mention it in, and you need to say, well, that's right for that nation. They've socially constructed that. Those morals are right for those, that nation. If there is no moral absolute, if there is no moral giver, if our morals either come from our biology and they're no different than teeth or hands or feet, then that means we shouldn't help anyone during a pandemic. We should be thankful that they're dying off because it lets us move to the next level of evolution. 
That means that we have no right to comment on what anyone else is doing anywhere else in the world, that the only thing we should be concerned about is the social construct of our very civilization here in Canada. That's what they say. Until it flies in the very face of what they believe. And then they have this huge inconsistency they got to figure out. But we all know there's objective moral standards. None of us hear about slavery, racial genocide, rape, or child abuse. And don't simply think, well, that's just impractical. We classify them as wrong and human. We don't just say, yeah, those are impractical for human civilization. They're not a good part of where we're at right now in terms of, 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 our, of, of, of our evolutionary um, part or, or portion in terms of our evolutionary historic stance in, in terms of the world sphere right now. So then what does it take us to? Listen to this. If the premise there is no God leads you to a conclusion that you know is false, ethnic cleansing is culturally relative, then why not change the premise? So the possibility of God's existence. Peter Medawar, Oxford immunologist, says this, not a believer. That there is indeed a limit upon science is made very likely by the existence of questions that science cannot answer, and that no conceivable advance of science would empower it to answer. I have in mind such questions as, how did everything begin? Why are we, what are we all here for? What is the point of living? Those are great questions. Jay Bozinski says this, to say we cannot know anything about God is to say something about God. It is to say if there is a God, he is unknowable. He says it's very interesting when people make claims about the unknowability of God because that very claim, he's a philosopher, so it gets a little deep, but his, his very claim is to make a statement about God is to actually admit that there is a God because you can't make about a statement about something that you don't believe exists or that doesn't exist. Answer the, the questions about Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy. Some people would say believing in God is like believing in Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy, but that is such a ridiculous claim. Here's why. No one wakes up at 27 years old and says, huh, there's a Santa. No one does that. No one at 30 years old has their wisdom teeth put out and says, you know what? I'm, I'm going to put my wisdom teeth under my pillow tonight. The tooth fairy might show up. No one does that. That's not what happens, right? But lots of people around the world one day come to the point in place where they believe that God exists. And he's shown himself supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. He's revealed himself in him. And they do it as young children because you just need childlike faith. And they do it in their teens and they do it in their 20s and they do it in their 50s and they do it in their 90s all through their life. People come to the place where God's spirit awakens them to that. So what about suffering and purpose? Richard Dawkins says this about suffering. In a universe of blind forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. You won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect it. If there is at bottom no design, listen to this, no purpose, listen, no good, no evil, sorry, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Do you know that? You know, Dawkins says there is no good or evil. He says that. He says there is no evil, not just here, in his writings, in his speeches, he does not believe that you can quantify good or evil. He doesn't believe they exist. 
And he doesn't believe we can create morals. He doesn't even believe in the social construct of morals. That's what he's throwing out to our young people. It is almost irresistible. This is another quote. Uh, Steven Weinberg, a physicist. For humans to believe that we have some special relation to the universe, that human life is just a more or less farcical outcome of a chain of accidents reaching back to the first three minutes, but that somehow we were built in it from the beginning. It is very hard to realize that it all is just a tiny part of an overwhelming hostile universe. It is even harder to realize that this present universe has evolved from an unspeakably unfamiliar early condition and faces a future extension of endless cold or intolerable heat. The more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it seems pointless. I mean, you read that, you keep reading his book, and like at the end of it, you're like, wow, I just feel dark and empty. Because they're saying there's no point, there's no point to any of this, there's nothing. We, by haphazard chance, either of a multiverse or of being lucked out in all of the possibilities, ended up here. And you live your life, and at the end, it's done. At the end of the day, that means there are no morals. Biology doesn't create morals. They know it's their biggest dilemma. Biology does not create morals. And if the social construct does, why does one social construct ever have the right to impose their morals on another social construct? Why would that ever be the case? Who would ever give that right or that authority? And Malcolm Muggridge, famed journalist who died a number of years ago, says this. Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experience that the time seemed desolating, on experiences, sorry, that at times seemed desolating or painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced my enlightened, or, or sorry, an enlightened existence, my existence, has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. This is, of course, why the, what the cross signifies, and it is the cross more than anything else that has called me inexorably to Christ. And so I close with these thoughts. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. He was there before anything. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. So three thoughts. One, we need to have faith. There's no way around it. I cannot prove to you the existence of God any more than a scientist can prove to me the existence of matter in terms of, of its eternality, not in terms of its existence right now. I believe matter exists because God created it. But I can't prove to you the existence of God. I believe, undoubtedly, in the existence of God. But when scientists come to us, atheists or agnostic in nature, espousing some theory of matter always existing, they have not and cannot and will not ever prove it. Why do I believe that? Because they can only ever look back on a fallen world and they'll never be able to prove that matter existed unless when they find that matter they realize it's not matter at all but indeed it is God himself. Because God did it. But it takes faith. And so all of us need to exercise that faith and be unashamed of it God grants us faith in him. Is that not good news? He allows us to believe in him. He grants us that faith. Second, it leads to hope. We have a hope. I mean, I mean, when you read the atheistic, agnostic material, no good, no evil, does that sound like hope? Morals are illusory. Does that sound like hope? At the end, there's nothing. 
One day there'll be extreme heat or extreme cold. And you have to ask yourself, why aren't we at the end if the universe has had no beginning and always existed? Shouldn't then a universe that has always existed without any beginning always be at an end, not coming to one? Sorry, that's a little bit on the philosophical side, but it's something that a number of people espouse that I agree with. The universe should always be coming to an end, not coming, not that the end is coming, but it should always be at its end because it never had a beginning, meaning it's always existed, coming to that same place at the same time, always. But we have a hope. We have a hope. It's a great hope. We have a hope in a God who will never leave or forsake us. We have a hope in one who will walk with us even through the valley of the shadow of death. It's not illusory. It is our God in whom we couldn't have existed without him. In the beginning, God. God spoke and things just showed up into existence because he is that supremely powerful. He is the Lord God Almighty. And when we chose to sin and rebel against him, he sent his son because he would spare no expense to bring us back. Is that not great news? He pursued us by taking his sin, our sin, sorry, upon himself, and by being sinless, he was able to defeat sin and Satan and death, and three days later, he was risen to life again by the power of the Father. That's what Jesus has done, and we have hope. I talked to someone at length this week who is suffering. They have lost everything. Their life has collapsed around them entirely. They are a believer. And in their life collapsing around them and in losing everything and feeling they're at the lowest point of their entire life, I said, what have you got? He said, I only got one thing. I've got God. That's all I've got. Everything else has been stripped away, but I know that God is there and I know he won't let me go. At the end of the conversation, I asked if I could pray for him over the phone. I just said, can I just take a, a few minutes and pray for him? He said, of course you can. And then he said this, he said, because even though he's felt distant, I know he's not far. Even though I haven't sensed his presence, I know he's still there. Because that's our God. That's our God. He's still there. Oh, God, I can't feel you, but I know that you're there. Oh, God, you feel distant, but I know that you're there. You've promised you're there. And I claim and cling to your promises and we have a hope that one day when our eyes close on this plane, they open on another and we see Jesus. Is that not great news? When they open on that plane, we will see the creator, God of the universe, all things being created by him and for him. And in that moment, I feel when we, I believe when we feel we're going to be undone because we're in the presence of a holy other being, God. The accomplished work of Christ and his shed blood will allow us into his presence for all of eternity to do what? And that's my last point, and you guys can come up. To worship. To worship. We worship this God. We sell it. No one else is worthy of worship. Nothing else is worthy of worship. In fact, we'll look at that. Why, why is the creation account in Genesis so distinct when we start into the next week from any other creation account in the world? Because in every other creation account, all of the other uh, accounts at that time were worshiping the deity of the sun or the deity of the moon or the deity of the stars or the deity of the planet. We worship God who is the deity who created the sun, the moon, the stars, the planet. We worship him who's so unimaginably powerful that when he spoke, things just showed up. Because nothing can't create something, but God who existed can take the nothing that is there and make something of it because he's that supremely powerful.
That's our God, and so we worship him. We delight in him. We celebrate him because he is God. And that God who spoke the universe into existence, that God who sustains the universe by his might and will, that God who created us and granted us purpose and life in whom we put our hope and our faith, that God is the God that we worship because we can trust him. He is our God. He is our God. Would you pray with me? We are thankful, oh God, that you are the creator of all things. And when we chose to sin and rebel, we're thankful, Jesus, that you came. You cloaked your deity with humanity, you lived among us, and you died on our behalf. You took our sin upon yourself. And as the Father poured his wrath out on you, you graciously responded in dying for our sins. We're thankful that three days later, you were raised to life again because you were sinless. Thank you, Spirit of God, that you're in us now. You guide us. You comfort us. God, we confess that we live in a day where it's so easy to doubt, where it's so easy to feel like we don't have answers, where our faith wavers. So God, increase our faith. God, be our hope. And God, we worship you. Because you are God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to you be glory and might forever and ever. Amen.